Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with We Go grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at We Go since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today, we talked to Becky Banarik, class of 2005, lecture at the Tutorium in Intensive English at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Becky will share with us how the opportunity to teach English in France became the spark for her to pursue teaching English language at the College to International Students at UIC. Joining us today is Becky Banarik from the class of 2005. Becky, what do you do? Uh, I am an ESL teacher at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Becky, when you left WeGo, what did you do after that? Uh, I went to North Central College in Naperville, uh, very far away. Um, <laughs> uh, I went there because, honestly, uh, they gave me a better scholarship, and I wanted to do speech. And that was one of the few colleges in the area that allowed me to to do speech. Um, I ended up made double majoring in creative writing and French and minoring in social change and public advocacy. Um, I'm lucky I did not add a second minor. <laughs> I was really close to adding either political science or uh, philosophy just to make me, you know, the complete liberal arts person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really checked a lot of boxes there. Uh, so you, with speech, what was your specialty in speech? Like, what was your area of focus? Um, it, it was a joke when I was on the team that I was a very interp heavy person. So the acting categories, um, but I first got into, I broke into national outrounds with a public address and an actual speech, uh, that I wrote myself. Um, I was successful in inform informative speaking after dinner speaking, which is one of the, the funny ones, uh, and prose interpretation. So I was all over the board in no way, shape or form did I touch impromptu or uh, anything where I had to speak on my feet, which is ironic for my choice, chosen course of career. So, uh, what was, what was the, the speech that you, that you wrote that you just said that you, um, that you're so successful with? Um, it was an informative speech about um, it was called a live scribe, which now you can actually buy pretty much anywhere at Walmart or target or, Amazon. Um, it's one of those, it's a notebook and pen combination that when you take notes, it actually records the sound around you and you can upload your notes to your computer. And then when you go back after a lecture, if you tap on a word, your pen will play back the audio of uh, what was happening when you wrote that word. Oh, wow. Now, when... <laughs> So what were some of the um, places that the speech 
opportunities uh, that brought you to while you were at North Central? Did you guys travel anywhere um, pretty significant? What were some of the places that you uh, really enjoyed while you were there? For national tournaments, that's where we really got to travel. Um, I went to Austin, Texas for a national tournament, uh, Rome, Georgia, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, yeah, a really around the Midwest mostly is where most of the tournaments happen. But for nationals, those were always the big ones where we got to go somewhere fun. Um, when I broke my, when I got into national out rounds with my funny speech, um, Gosh, that was that was in somewhere warm. I remember that. It was. I just remember it being warm, and it was great because it was April and very cold still in Chicago. As it always is. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder what, what's the process when you start when you were drafting the original, uh, the funny speech that uh, you had success with. Like, what was like the walk me through the process of like how you kind of found your the inspiration for it and and all that. Um, So the funny speech was actually about being an English major and why English majors are worthy, um, why English is worthy as a major. Um, So it was really close to my heart and I got to um, really explore really nerdy jokes. And um, so the basis of that speech really came from my my parents not really respecting what I majored in being, you know, liberal arts times, you know, infinity. Uh, so I really wanted to justify why English literature, creative writing, everything involved in that was worth it, was valuable to the society. It was valuable personally. Um, and then I got to sprinkle in all my nerdy jokes my attention getter was real. My hook was real. It was about a, when I was in first grade, I wrote a chapter book. It was called Hearts, Hearts, Hearts. In the first chapter, uh, a class got in trouble for going across the street without asking the teacher. And that was the end of that chapter. And the third chapter, uh, a basketball team went to the Super Bowl and they won. <laughs> so I just, I started with this idea that, you know, I have to justify, I have to argue for my place in society, but I might as well be funny while doing it. You had two majors. You were in creative writing and French. What was the type of genre that you were kind of drawn to uh, when you were uh, kind of honing your craft? Um, it was really interesting to, because I thought I would always be more poetry. I loved writing poetry. I still love writing poetry. And then for my capstone, for my big portfolio at the end of my college career, I was looking back and I wrote a lot of nonfiction, actually, a lot more essay type mullings over um, political events, over um the nature of humanity. Um, and that was, it was really interesting because I thought I was more like n- fiction and then I ended up being more nonfiction. Um, I enjoy all of it, but I think I'm more drawn to mulling about, you know, what makes us human. What 
who are your favorite writers that you kind of were emulating while you were kind of then kind of finding that kind of niche within nonfiction? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm asking selfishly as an AP language teacher. So that's, I'm always on the lookout for more, for more uh, potential uh, sources and texts. Well, ironically, a lot of um, my nonfiction style came from fiction. Um, I love George Orwell, love, love, love George Orwell and all of his essays. Um, fantastic. My favorite. Um, Joan Didion as well, as dense as she can be. Um, but a lot of the inspiration for my style of nonfiction does come from fiction. Um, and I'm not sure why that's a really psychological question to ask. Maybe, you know, truth is very much like fiction and that's where my style comes from, I guess. You were also a had a major in French, and I would imagine that you were able to travel a little bit with this. Uh, what was that like? Um, yes, actually. that uh, Studying French actually le led me to my current career, as weird as that seems. Um, after I graduated, I just, I kind of fell into the French major. I wanted to keep studying French. Um, I love the language. I love the history. Um, both, you know, the not so great history and the fun history. Um, and I just fell into the major because I kept taking classes. Uh, after I graduated, um, I graduated college in 09. So during the lovely economic recession, um, and I had wanted to pursue editing and literature and that wasn't going to happen. So I had heard about this opportunity in France through the French government to teach for an academic year at a French high school. So I applied thinking I would never get it. And of course I got the program. Um, so I ended up spending about nine months in a small town in France uh, where very few people spoke English. So I didn't teach by myself. I was more like a teaching assistant. Um, but I did get to teach some classes on my own when my teacher would step out. And that's where in France, in this, you know, tiny town of 17,000 people, that's where I discovered that I really liked teaching. I never thought I would teach ever in my life. That was the first thing I said I would never teach, especially English. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. T. I never thought I would teach English. And then I ended up teaching English language to people who didn't speak English. And I loved it. I fell in love, absolutely fell in love with everything about it. Um, and so like my French major actually led me to English teaching in the US. Um, but to answer your real question, yes, I traveled a lot. <laughs> Well, you were, in, you were that's an amazing experience that you were there for nine months. So let's let's hold on to that uh, a little bit, a little bit longer. Um, when did you feel that your acquisition and application of French became almost seamless? Like so, I mean, because you must have had some confidence to, to just apply and 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 then make the leap and go there. But when did you feel like you know I can I can. Uh, can have some mastery with this French. How long did it take for that immersion of being in France before you felt that it really took hold? 
ironically, when I was still studying, when I was a senior in college, um, I remember going to my professor and saying, one of my classmates is making me feel really small. I don't feel comfortable speaking in class. I never really felt comfortable speaking in class, but this specific classmate is really me making me feel uncomfortable even trying to practice the language. I felt not good enough. My listening comprehension was terrible. Writing was terrible. I was really down on my abilities. So thinking that I could survive by myself in France was like uh, kind of a kind of a shot in the dark. Um, and I remember feeling extremely homesick, like I've never been homesick in my life the first week that I was there. Because this was the fourth time I'd traveled to France. Um, the longest time, but like the fourth time. And I was so homesick. All I wanted was to speak English. All I wanted was a friend. Um, but being in a classroom filled with people who don't speak your native language, but you're teaching them your native language, gives you that confidence because you're seeing 25, 30 people trying to speak, trying to read, trying to write. And you recognize yourself in them because you're doing the same thing. Add in, you know, going to the bank and trying to figure out how to get a bank account, how to have a cell phone in a foreign language and a foreign culture. Um, the moment I knew that I was okay was probably my parents came to visit over our spring break and I could lead them around. Like I translated for them all over, um, with my colleagues. Um, and I, I felt I got this. I know what I'm doing. I'm good. Now I know because I can help someone else do the same thing that I was doing. That's so cool. Now, the, I guess my, my other follow-up question, when you were in the classroom, I, I mean, I, I would love to know what are the similarities between French teenagers and what are the differences between French teenagers and Americans that you, that you have a, a memory of or a, 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 can comment on about what those differences and similarities are? In some ways, they are exactly the same. And in some ways, they're just slightly different. Um, <laughs> um, and this is what, where I also fell in love with teaching this age range. Um, they're just going through so many changes, as I'm sure you can observe. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and it's just the, like the relationship, the drama. Oh, my gosh, the drama. Uh, <laughs> it's just as an adult, it's real funny to observe. And then you remember how very unfun it was having to go oh, through. Yeah. Um, they are, they're a lot more in, at least in the students that I taught, they were a lot more free with their time. Um, because French teenagers, their school lasts like all day. It starts at eight yeah, 8 a.m. is the first class. Their last class ends at 6 p.m. Wow. Uh, however, however, they have <laughs> a nice little two-hour lunch break in the day. So they're allowed this time to do what they will. Um, so from my memory um, and from observing, you know, the 18-year-olds that I teach, the 17-year-olds that I teach, um, they're 
they're very independent French teenagers. Um, they, they have a schedule. They spend money wisely for the most part. Um, and, but it's the, the drama that I remember the most. <laughs> so what was the, where was the town in France where you lived? Um, the town I was in was called La Flèche, which means the arrow. Um, it's equidistant between Angers and Le Mans. And the biggest, closest city would be Nantes. Uh, it's in the Loire Valley. And whenever I say that to somebody, it's in the Loire Valley where all the castles are, basically. Oh, wow. Castles and white wine. That's what comes from my region. <laughs> Was it just a one-year term that the French government allowed? Did you want to stay again, or was it just like no one and done type of thing? What uh, or did you just have to come home? What was the uh, um, what was the decision there? So um, my original contract was for seven months, and then you could apply for an extension for to nine months, and then after that you had to come home. Your your visa was up. Well, you had ninety days to come home because after your visa was up, then you were on a tourist visa. Um, and I applied to go back again. Uh, they do say that the second time around, if it is your second time around, you're less likely to be picked because they want to give this opportunity to as many people as possible. Um, I did apply. I was not picked. Um, and I still clearly wanted to teach. So right after I got my rejection letter, I applied for my master's program. Was that at UIC or where, or was that still at North Central? Yeah, that was at, it was at UIC. They no longer have this master's program, but it was um, the only one in kind of the area. I know DeKalb has one, um, or they used to have one, but it's focused on K through 12. So the only real one in the area was at UIC, applied linguistics with a focus on TESOL. Linguistics linguistics is a really I, I had I remember I took a linguistics a couple when I was in college and one and when I was getting my master's as well I, I was I was struck by how it felt sometimes very mathematical the way you had to kind of break some stuff down I was wondering what was your what was some of your favorite coursework uh, when you're going through uh, the this this part of the graduate program Oh my gosh yes <laughs> yes a lot of very logical thinking. Um, that we had to go through. The first couple courses were um, intro to linguistics and grammar. Um, and they were both torture <laughs> <laughs> because they were so logical and we're all native speakers. We know how this works, but why it works is just mind blowing um, when you first get into it. Um, but most of my favorite courses were actually more about sociolinguistics, how we use language in cultures and in how different cultures use language. Um, and also, honestly, like methodology and using technology, in, which really helps right now, um, but using technology in different methods of teaching kind of the same idea, which is what I was so against in the first place, um, teaching different ways to teach the same thing, which is what keeps everything interesting. Those are my mm -hmm. favorites. I like, like linguistics was fine. <laughs> it was okay. Yeah. Grammar was okay. But um, 
like sociolinguistics that's that's where that's it's where at it's I, at. I mean that yeah. that's that was it, there was it was there was something it felt like a puzzle i remember i remember like taking these <laughs> notes where we would i don't remember what exactly what it was anymore i i wish i still had my notebook for it somewhere where we i guess we outlined or de, de- trees Yes, the trees. Thank you. God, and I hate we, the trees. Yeah, we did the tree for anti-disestablishmentarianism oh. or something like that. It was like, you know, the longest word in the yeah. English language, one of those. And I remember it took like four pages to kind of break down uh, all parts of it. It was just yeah. incredible. For like etymology, like the history of words, that is super interesting Like to, to know that something ridiculous and i'm making up this number but it is a ridiculously high number like 60 percent of our vocabulary actually comes from old french because of the norman conquest and the etymology which i unfortunately never got to study that's what's interesting those trees the linguistic trees where you had to diagram a sentence are a different form of torture that i'm pretty sure is illegal in most countries um However, I'll say this, there, um, there's actually a, a company that diagrams like lyrics from songs. And I saw them at a, like a craft market and I went berserk and I'm like, how many of these can I buy? Cause they just look so cool now that I don't have to do them. Yeah. Right. I know it's like, it's your badge of honor that you made your way through it. What's your favorite sociolinguistic kind of story you know that you like that when you were doing your study like whoa, whoa that's really interesting I, I i love stories of language uh like that what was one of your favorite like it was it was it something that came from a particular culture or era where you're like that just kind of blew your mind uh well my my professor was um well specialized in uh african-american vernacular black english and um spanish english And he did a lot of studies uh, from like CPS schools on the South side Um, and just hearing and transcribing and analyzing how elementary age, so like five to 10 year old children um, had acquired different, different dialects of English a black dialect and a more, and I hate this word, but more white dialect. Let's use that. Mm -hmm. Um, That is really interesting. That was really interesting to me. And I'm literally making this connection now, but that's kind of where I'm taking my current interest in studying is these different vernaculars of English, these different dialects and how we place value on them socially, um, politically, all of those, how the vernacular you speak affects where you could stand in society. And that was like, really, that's what really grabbed me in my sociolinguistics class. Yeah, I, I find that there, all, all of that stuff, whenever, because I know there's like George Lakoff does a lot of work with mm-hmm. uh, metaphors and all that. And I, I remember watching one of those first initial lectures of that and just, it again, just blew my mind that I'm like, wow, that, that kind of does make sense about how we can organize our sense of reality through the language uh, in such a way. And um, that it is, it is, uh, it's so fascinating. And how we relate to one another. It's, it's really helpful. 
again, with the students I teach to be able to have just a little bit of background about how different languages communicate, what they value in communication. Uh, when we first, when I first started at UIC after having other teaching English jobs, um, we had a different population than any of us had ever taught before. We had young, mostly wealthy um, Chinese students and Indian students and students from Pakistan. And we didn't know much about how young people acted <laughs> from those countries. But knowing that, um, and these are generalizations, of course, they're not always true, but they're not, and they're not true for everybody. But knowing that in when you speak Chinese, you don't necessarily make eye contact. Um, they will hedge, they will um, not say something directly, um, especially if it's criticism. <laughs> like knowing these things about how different cultures interact with language helps me be able to teach them, help them acclimate to an American academic context more effectively. So having that sociolinguistic background is helpful for not just me, but I mean, anybody in who interacts with people who don't speak your same native language. I mean, it's, it's how it, it would facilitate just in breaking down the language is so imprecise anyway, but then when you factor in all of those uh, other uh, features in there, I remember there was this book that um, it was called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes by Daniel Everett. And he was in the Amazon with the, I am going to probably butcher the name of this, this is the, the uh, Piraha uh, um, tribe. Mm -hmm. And they, they don't have, they don't have a, a word for left or right. Like, I mean, yeah. anything like that, that should just be like a basic kind of uh, thing. Like it, because their, their sense of the world is oriented to the river. And so the, they developed language for directionality based upon where they knew the river was from them. And it, I just, it, it's just, it, it's just like, how do you, how you, I have to kind of then try to try figure out how would I, you know, would I, would I do that to route 88 or like, how would I be able to kind of figure In out. In Chicago, how, it's the lake. Yeah, the lake. Yeah, exactly. So there's kind of some precedent for it, right? It's fascinating. Which forever astounds me. Like, you yeah. can't see the lake. I don't know where it is. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah, and so, like those cultures that that have a, a different relationship to time that that we do necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I, had a, I have a very good friend from Germany, and the Germans are always on time. Very, very strict about that. And... I mean, American culture, we're pretty on time. We value punctuality. Um, but like even dealing with that is just an extreme. If you're interested, yeah. you, sorry, if you're interested, yeah, um, yeah. Lexicon Valley, which was a podcast um, by John Wick. Well, he was doing it recently. John McWhorter. John McWhorter is yeah. a, oh. yeah, John McWhorter's yeah, linguist out of Stanford. Um, fantastic. And does a lot of deep dives into yeah. Um, all these Funny that you mentioned that. I, I literally just showed a uh, McWhorter uh, TED talk that he did on texting from. T um, ah. uh, yeah, it was, it's fantastic. <laughs> I use yeah. that in my class. <laughs> ah, see, perfect. I know it's so good. It's so it's fascinating. So, um, so you you finish up your grad school, and then how do you then kind of then what's the next step after that? 
Um, I finished grad school with um, possibly the best cohort of all time. I loved everyone who was in my cohort with me. Um, and my field, being in Chicago, my field is very saturated. Um, there are so many different places that teach English and there are so many different teachers of English to speakers of other languages. Um, and it's very hard to find a full-time job, extremely difficult. Um, most people teach at least at two different universities, if not three. Um, my record was three, but I never actually taught a class at the third one. Um, I started working for uh, a company, a for-profit institution um, that taught, I mean, students were, went from high school age, like in the summer to, we had some business executives, like CEOs of companies from overseas that were in their mid sixties. Um, which made for a great classroom experience when I had both of them in the same class. Very odd. Um, I also taught at Triton College. Uh, so my days were very long. I would teach basically from about 8.30 until 10 o'clock at night some days. Wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, what's your current position? Um, I'm currently a lecturer. Um, a non-tenure track faculty member at the tutorium in intensive English. And how's that? So what, what's a typical day like for you? Oh, it depends on the semester. I mean, during the pandemic, everything moved online and I was teaching students who were still in China. So our classes were at like 6am. Uh, great. Wonderful. Loved it. <laughs> and that's not entirely sarcasm. <laughs> I don't mind early days. Um, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a planner. I like to get all of my work done very, very early on. So early in the semester, my days are very long. I'm lesson planning. I am, you know, building our online presence. Um, but now midterms just happened now. Um, now I'm more looking towards, okay, how can I improve my courses for next semester? Um, what changes can I make? Uh, what readings can I add? Um, and then I'm, I also do research, um, both, you know, professional development research and um, just research on my own things that I'm interested in. Um, so a typical day is, of course, there's grading. <laughs> oh. uh, of course, lots of grading. Love, love me some research papers. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, but like now it's mostly, okay, what can I do for the future? Um, as well as of course, administrative or, uh, different departmental things that, you know, I can help my, my director out with. How do you, do you have, what kind of autonomy do you have for selecting the texts that you use with your students? Um, for the big, for our textbooks, um, they go through a very rigorous vetting process. It takes like a year or more to vet these textbooks, but different articles that I can add in, those are entirely up to me. Um, however, we will adapt them for the students. Uh, that means going through the Flesh Kincaid reading adaptability. So we look at like five different formulas that will tell you what reading level a given article is at. Um, and depending on which level I'm teaching, which level I'm aiming this article for, 
that'll depend on how difficult the article can be. So I'll take maybe like an article from the New York Times. And if it's too long, I have to shorten it. Um, if it's too short, I have to lengthen it. Uh, and just make sure that the grammar, the vocabulary is at their reading level. So they still get kind of an authentic article, just kind of dialed down, usually, especially from the New York Times, dial it down a little bit so that it is within their their grasp. My focus now, I've been trying to kind of build in actually more, more listening. Um, of course, they're going to find the transcript somewhere and read that. That's fine. But just to let them know that there are interesting videos, interesting podcasts out there that um, I'm thinking specifically for writing a research paper. Our guidelines for the research paper are some, somewhat flexible what they can use for research. But knowing that there are interesting things to listen to and strengthen their listening abilities, and it's not just, you know, from the, you know, Journal of Medicine or something like that, you know, from the, from the university library database, that there are actually interesting things that you can listen to and that you can read that aren't going to fry your brain when you try to look at them. The, the, I usually end the interview with asking the guest uh, if there are any tips for success that you would give current Wildcats. Yeah, um, I was thinking about this because I listened to several other podcasts. <laughs> um, and since I am a teacher, I give a lot of feedback. And so I've got three and I'm going to use my sandwich. So I've got a do, the negative don't, and then another do. Um, first, take your time. In this day and age... <laughs> No one knows what they want to do. I was pushing 30 before I knew what I wanted to do in life, even though I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Trust the process. Take your time. Don't let anyone push you into something before you know that you're ready. Um, take your time because you've got a lot of it and no one knows what they want to do right away. And that goes for a job, that goes for personal relationships. Take your time, slow it down. No one's going anywhere. Um, second, this is kind of like anti-advice from what I got. I was told early on in my current career to always say yes. And that has gotten me into so much trouble. Uh, for example, working from 8.30 to 10 o'clock at night. No one wants to do that. Don't always say yes. <laughs> no is a perfectly acceptable answer. And no is a complete sentence. Um, third, do be authentically you. And stand up for that you. There are... So many times someone is going to challenge you, going to question who you are, question what you believe in, and know that you know you better than anybody else is ever going to know you. You have so much that you bring to the table that no one else could possibly dream of. No one else is you, and you hear this everywhere, but no one else is you. 
No one else has your point of view. No one else has your skills and your unique combination of both. And along with that, stand up for that combination of skills. Don't let anyone ever try to take that from you or undervalue who you are and what you bring to the table. Know your worth and stand up for you. Wow, that was great. I love that no is a complete sentence. Oh, that is fantastic. I mean, that I mean, would that have is... saved, knowing that, not, I, I not mean... give that advice to say yes would have saved me so much grief. Ah, well, Becky, thank you so much. This was a blast. And best of luck for uh, the rest of the semester and mid grading those midterms and uh, and what happens next. This was this was so much fun. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, Find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search Wego Vox. That's Wego V O X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at Wego Places Podcast or on Twitter at Wego Places. <laughs>